If I can this morning, what I would like to do is uh, I'd like to maybe do something just a little bit different. I'd like to take a, a kind of bird's eye view, a 30,000 foot view, a panoramic view, and ask scripture a kind of big question, an expansive question, but I think an important question. And if you are a note taker, you can go ahead and jot this down. Here is the question. What on earth is Jesus doing? Now, some of you have had a couple of years and you're like, I know, right? What is Jesus doing in my life? We don't mean it that way. And we're not going to exhaust that question today, but I want to take one approach or one swipe at it, specifically from Matthew's gospel. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and flip over to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look at what is called or known as the Great Commission. And then we're going to look at three specific sections from earlier in Matthew's gospel that will help us understand what Matthew is really trying to get at in that kind of summary statement of the gospel of Matthew. And I'm hoping while we're together, we can accomplish three things. How many are good at multitasking? I'm not, so this is new for me. We'll see how it goes. The first thing I'd like to try to accomplish, if we can, is hermeneutic. And what I simply mean by that is interpretation. I hope that we do something today in the Gospel of Matthew that the next time you go and read the Gospel of Matthew for yourself, you remember, oh, I see what's going on here. And your reading of Matthew and my meeting of Matthew become more productive and more rich. That'll be objective number one. Objective number two is I hope we can leave today with the Spirit of God giving us some real glimpse. How many know what it's like when the Spirit of God gives you a glimpse? You understand what I mean by that language. That the Spirit of God will give us some glimpse, some inkling of the truly beautiful, radical, reorienting, reconstructive work that Jesus has called his people to on earth. Perhaps we're new to Christianity or maybe our Christianity has looked at the gospel through a certain lens and we've been used to thinking about Christianity is something very individual, that God loves me, and God forgives me, and God gives me life. And that is not unimportant. It starts there. And God will never grind his love for us under the wheels of accomplishing something larger. But that being said, the community of God really is about us. The gospel works in us as community of people. It works in us as a family. It works in us as a church. It works in us as a community. And ultimately, it works in us across the entire earth. And I pray that God will give us some glimpse of just how beautiful that plan is today. And then finally, I hope we can provide some kind of a criteria. Um, if you know me, I love rubrics. Those are little evaluative tools for assessing whether things are doing the thing they're supposed to be doing. They're my jam. Anybody else a rubric person? No, just me, kind of figured. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's fine, it's just me, okay, that's good. But I hope I can give you maybe some kind of a rubric because so many people right now are having these wonderful Holy Spirit experiences and they're beautiful. And I don't care whether we wanna call it personal renewal or whether we wanna call it revival or whether we wanna call it refreshing, whatever we wanna call it, it is absolutely critical that we have a way to think about it so that we can direct the energy created by it into the things that Jesus actually wants to accomplish. Now, whenever new energy is infused into the kingdom, whenever people experience a new passion, a new sense of calling for God, here's the thing about passion and energy. They don't do anything by themselves. They have to latch onto something else. 
And so when we have that from the Spirit, it will latch onto something. It will find something to do. It will find something to accomplish. It will find something to be passionate about. And how many know we need to make sure that the new passion that we have latches onto something that Jesus is actually passionate about as well? Amen. Amen? Let me give you an example of that. I want to please my wife. She will be delighted to hear that. And I'm always looking for signs that will help me assess whether I am doing well or not doing well at pleasing my wife. I've got a lot of room to grow. I'm sure she's got a list. But I'm looking for signs. And how many know if all of a sudden I catch my wife throughout the day routinely looking at me and just sort of smiling? Or if at the end of the day my wife over and over again just sort of sits down in the chair and she says, you know, it was just a great day with you today. Or maybe, maybe day after day after day she sits down by the, on the couch by me and puts her hand on my leg and locks eyes with me and says, I just want you to know that I love you today and I appreciate how you love me. Either I am doing really well or the doctor has called her with bad news about me. One of those two things is happening. But I'm, I'm looking for those signs. And when she does that, her positive expression of her presence in the relationship creates energy. And that energy could go into a meaningful conversation. That energy could go into an emotional moment together. That energy could go into us going for a walk. That energy could have a, a physical manifestation. But even after any of that happens, how many know there is still energy left over? And that energy, where it is most likely to go, is in me doing more of the behavior that I think led to her personal positive expression of her presence in the first place. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I could be wrong. See, I could believe that the reason that she is feeling the love is that she has noticed how hard I have been working. And so I begin to work harder and I work more and now she feels ignored. I could believe that the reason that she's feeling the love is maybe I'm showering more and I'm using that new aftershave. So I put on more of the aftershave and now she can't get within 10 feet of me. You see what I'm saying? I could be investing the energy that I'm receiving from her into something that I believe is pleasing her, but in fact is actually something she's not interested in at all. And spiritual renewal is the same. It is the personal expression of God's presence into his people. And when he pours out his love into our hearts, when he pours out his person into our hearts, it creates energy. And that energy will go somewhere. And it is most likely to go into the things that we believe we have done that God is already blessing and that have attracted his presence. And it is really important that we be right about what that is. So we ask the question, what on earth is Jesus doing? Because we want to focus that energy that's created by the Holy Spirit when we have these experiences with him. We want to focus that energy into things that we know Jesus is already passionate about. Does that make sense? So our time together today, when we get done, all we should be able to do is this. We should be able to say, here are the things I know that Jesus is doing on planet Earth because they were explicitly communicated in the mission of Jesus. And so anything that I'm adding energy to, anything that I am invested in, that I believe this Holy Spirit is doing in my life, has to work toward and reinforce and not work against the things that I know Jesus cares about. So what on earth is Jesus doing? 
Why don't we pray and we'll read the text. Father, we're so grateful today for your presence. We're grateful for the moving of your spirit in our hearts and lives. Some of us have experienced maybe for the first time just the real power of being in your presence and how real and tangible your presence can be in our lives. Others of us have experienced a renewal of that sense in our lives. Others of us have other things going on. You've been speaking to us about callings, about vision, about mission, about what you want to do with us and together with us. And today we pray, Lord, that you'll give us clarity that you'll take that passion, you'll help us to look at it, and you'll help us to direct it in the ways that are consistent with what your son is trying to accomplish. We ask that in Christ's name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. So we'll read together the text, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is after the resurrection, and it's Jesus looking at his disciples, and he is basically saying, here is what on earth I want you to do. And it turns out, not surprisingly, it is exactly what he has been doing while he's on earth, which it turns out, not surprisingly, is exactly what the plan of the Father was all the way from the beginning. So let's read it, starting in verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Please pay attention to that phrase. Baptizing, please pay attention to that phrase. Them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this the text, the Great Commission, or if you want to think of it in new language, the primary responsibility of the church, or if you want to use the language of our message, what on earth Jesus is doing, the text we've just referred to actually references other passages of Scripture. And it goes two places. The first place it goes is all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, we find Adam and Eve in the garden, and it is so hard for us to imagine what that must have been like. If we were to be able to go there, there they are in the garden full of abundance. They are fully loved by God, fully loving each other. The word shame has not entered their vocabulary. The word fear has not entered their vocabulary. Stress has not entered their vocabulary. None of it has. It is pure abundance. And there they are in the midst of the beautiful world that God has created. And he looks at them and he says, this is awesome. Make more people who can enjoy what I have created for you. Genesis 1, starting in verse 28, puts it this way. Then God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said... Now that everything is great, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. I can't reign over the chipmunks in my yard. That's how far out of Eden we are right now. (laughs) Then God said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant for food for the wild animals. I've provided for the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that's what happened. And God looked over all he made and he said, oh, that's very good. Now we have to keep in mind that when Jesus is talking to the disciples, commanding them in Matthew 28 to make disciples, he's really commanding them to fill the earth with followers of him. This is not anything new. It's a callback to that original Genesis plan. So whatever Jesus is asking the disciples to do in Matthew 28, whatever he's asking the church to do now, it is like the original in Genesis chapter one. He is asking them to help people become the kind of people 
that if the whole earth were full of them, it would be Eden again. Let me say that again. What he's asking them to do is help people become the kind of people that if the earth were full of people like them, it would become Eden again. So the original creation, Eden, and the new creation, God's people, are in direct continuity with each other. Now the second section of scripture that Matthew 28 calls back to is actually the rest of Matthew's gospel. Are we doing okay? Is it okay if we do a little bit of teaching? Is that okay? Okay, good, 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 good. So the second section, that we're, because I don't have another plan, just so you know, okay, that's good. So yes is the right answer, otherwise we'll just dismiss. Matthew 28 references back really to the rest of the gospel, but specifically chapters one through seven. So can you pull that Matthew uh, 28 text back up, the one with the underlinings? And in Matthew 28, this final statement from Jesus, what he is in essence saying is, this command that I am giving you is just to continue doing what I have already been doing from the beginning of creation and from the beginning of my earthly ministries. I have been making disciples of all nations. We see that in Genesis one, and we're going to see that in the genealogy in Matthew one. I have been baptizing, that is bringing up good new things out of watery chaos. We'll see that in Genesis 1 and we'll see that in the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. And I have also been teaching people to obey the commandments that lead to the Eden way of life. And I was doing that in Genesis and I will do that in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. So all of 28, that great commission is a summary of what he is doing in his earthly ministry. Does that all make sense. So if we want to know what on earth Jesus is doing, he says, it's simple. I am sending my message to all people. I am baptizing people so that they become new. And then I'm instructing them to become the kind of people who will repopulate an Eden kind of life. He's taking people. So if we can, for just the next few moments, I want to try to flesh out those three ideas. And again, it will be from a 30,000 foot view. But I want to flesh out those ideas that Matthew is communicating by looking at the interaction between the Great Commission in chapter 28 and the sections of the text he references back to in the first seven chapters so we can continue to clarify the answer to that question. What on earth is Jesus doing? So idea number one, Jesus is building a local and global community that includes all kinds of people. Jesus is building a local and global community that includes all kinds of people. Now, when Matthew gives the command in the Great Commission to uh, disciple all nations, in the Greek it is ethnos, it is all kinds or groups of people, and it again has two textual references, all the way back to Genesis chapter one. All nations in Matthew 28 have to be made followers of Jesus and like Jesus because that's the original plan. Before there even were any ethnos, before there were any divisions of people, the plan was take people, fill the entire earth with people who are made in my image. The plan was always for a global community made in the image of God. But Matthew also has in mind, Matthew chapter one, the opening genealogy and is addressing a very real situation happening in the church he is writing to. Now, many scholars believe that Matthew uh, was written to and maybe even from the city of Antioch. And this is where the church fled to where they were persecuted in Jerusalem by the Roman establishment and by the Jewish establishment. They fled to Antioch. And Christians 
at this time were just considered really a sect of Jews. So if you read first century documents, it talks about Christians lumped in with the rest of the Jews. And why that's important is because the Christians shared a very Jewish view of how God was going to bring the kingdom. In other words, how he was going to fulfill Genesis chapter one. And here's what they believed. They believed that God would come and he would pour out his spirit on a nation, a people, an ethnos, and that he would do that in a location so that they would, Jerusalem would experience the outpouring of the Spirit, it would be on the Jews, and even more specifically than the Jews, it would be on the tribe of Judah. And even more specifically than the tribe of Judah, it would be the men of the tribe of Judah. That was their belief, that God would do that and then raise up and elevate that community to such a stature that the rest of the world would say, Yahweh is there, and they would become Jewish. And the danger was because that was not the Genesis 1 plan. The Genesis 1 plan was for a global community of peers, of equals, of friends, of co-laborers. And Jerusalem had developed a theology that didn't say we are the vehicle through which God accomplishes that. They developed a theology that said we're up here and everybody else can come around us. And the danger was that when Pentecost is poured out on the church, the church thinks in their head, great, now we're gonna go back to Jerusalem, he's gonna elevate us, the rest of the world is gonna see how awesome we are, and they're gonna become Christ followers. In other words, they could use the energy created by Pentecost to accomplish something that God himself was not actually passionate about. Do you understand what I'm saying? That was the danger. But when God poured out his spirit at Pentecost, they could have misused and misstewarded that moment. This is why Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus in a very specific way. He's doing it to deconstruct this vision that Jerusalem's material prosperity and, and religious prosperity was necessary to accomplish the goal of filling the earth with God's people. So if we go back and we look at his family tree in Matthew chapter one, it is just absolutely filled with people who are either in exile, that means they don't live in Jerusalem or even in Israel, who are not Jewish or who are Jewish and are just not great people. The reason he's doing that is to deconstruct this idea that Jerusalem, a location, or Israel, a nation, or a certain kind of people are the only people who can build the kingdom. So if we go and we look at it, and I encourage you to take some time because it's fascinating. I always think, man, if I were going to introduce somebody, if I were going to introduce you because you are my friend, I would not tell your family story the way that Matthew is telling this family story. He's introducing the king of the Jews. He's introducing the Messiah. And if we go back and we read it, he says, yeah, let me first introduce you to Abraham. Yeah, he was a pagan. He was living out in the desert and God said to him, hey, I wanna bring you over to this new land and I want you to create a people that have never existed before the Jewish people. And the point there is pretty clear that the Jewish people are not something God needs. They're something he created to fulfill and be a part of the mission. They aren't special because they exist. They exist because he is special. And in fact, if that point is lost on us, we can listen to the words of John the Baptist in chapter three, when he looks at the Jews and he says, you know, God can create children of Abraham from these stones if he needs to. Then the next person we run into in the genealogy is the prostitute Tamar. How many know you don't tell your best friend's family story that way? <laughs> and by the way, the person who hires her as a prostitute is her own father-in-law. 
in the family story. Then we run into Rahab, who is a pagan Canaanite prostitute. In the Hebrew, it seems to imply that she not only was a prostitute, but probably ran the brothel. Rahab is a pimp, okay? That's what's going on. Then we meet a pagan Moabitess named Ruth who marries a Jewish man named Boaz while they are in exile. Then Matthew goes through the trouble to tell us that Solomon is not the son of Bathsheba. He's the son of the wife of Uriah. Then we meet Jeconiah who lives in Babylon. Then we meet or we meet Josiah who's in Babylon, Jeconiah who lives after the exile in Babylon. And even if you go past the genealogy, Mary and Joseph are exiled out of the land of Israel. John the Baptist is forced to exercise his ministry outside the city of Jerusalem. The point of all of this is to remind them that it has always been not about a location and not about a nation. It has always been all the earth and all the ethnos. That has always been the plan of God. Now, Earth this year may cross eight billion people. Billion. It's important that we think about that. Say, well, why is that important? Because knowing about people is doing theology because people are made in the image of God, that's why. That is eight billion people, each of whom bear God's image differently. Eight billion people with a different story, eight billion people with a different gift set, eight billion people with a different emotional experience, a different perspective, eight billion people who come from different ethnos. And it's important that we think about this and chew on this idea. If every one of those eight billion people were as like Jesus as perfectly possible, I want you to think about this. Eight billion people, every one of them is as like Jesus as they could ever be. They would all still be different from each other. That's really important. Because what that means is that my view of God by myself is incomplete. It is not possible for me as an individual to have a comprehensive view of God or to accurately reflect God by myself. And therein lies the problem with any Christian movement or any ministry or any ideal of the ideal Christian community that is not driven toward all ethnos, all people. It fails to recognize that at this point there are eight billion different iterations of what it means to be in the image of God. They are all different and they are all valuable. And when we minimize them or we reduce them or we select them, we actually change the image of God that's reflected in people. Maybe we can think about it this way. Sin and idolatry really are just the same thing. They're a good thing that has outgrown its pot. I mean, God loves, God, greed is just God's goodness that's outgrown its pot. God loves to bless his people with things. How many are grateful for that? God gives us taste buds, he gives us eyes to see beautiful things. He gives us the ability to experience pleasure. But when that outgrows its pot, it becomes greed. It becomes destructive. It can be manipulative. It can be disingenuous. It can even become a false theology if we can codify it inside of Christianity. 
We have this beautiful thing that outgrows its pot called sex, where God says, I wanna take one person with another person and with their body, tell that other person that you are worth knowing, you are worth loving, you are worth committing to, and you can trust me being close to you because I'll never abandon you and I won't hurt you. But when it outgrows its pot, it becomes painful and difficult and destructive. See, sin isn't the things we're bad at, sin is the things that we're too good at. It's a good thing gone astray. So God has us know the truth. That's a good thing. It outgrows its pot and becomes Phariseeism or intellectualism. God gives us a country to steward and operate, but when it outgrows its pot, it can become nationalism. All of these things are good things. Sitting at the center of every sin and every idolatry is a good thing that God has made. And because we all have a unique perspective and calling and experience, we all tend to have just a few of these good things in our pot. We don't have all of them. And if one expression of God's image outgrows its pot and tries to make itself a complete vision of God, it becomes by definition idolatrous. If you don't forget, if you don't, if you, if you only remember one sentence I say today, please let it be this one. It is a theological reality that God exists most truthfully and accurately and is represented most fully only in the diverse community of his people. It is a theological reality that if we only know people who know God like us, we only know part of God. That is why Jesus is building a local and global community that includes all kinds of people. I have in my home a handwritten diary from 1739. It was written by Joseph Emerson. If you're a history buff, Joseph Emerson was close friends with the theologian Jonathan Edwards. And in it is recorded one of the earliest manuscript accounts of a voluntary interracial prayer meeting. And it happened during the Great Awakening, the revival in 1739. Because any genuine work of God's spirit among his people will move the all ethnos toward each other. Any genuine movement of the Spirit of God will drive all ethnos toward each other. It's something we have to commit to, and this phrase, all ethnos, shouldn't be limited to simply describe races and nations, though those are primary and included, but it can appropriately be expanded to encompass any group gathered by qualities that can tend to isolation. So all ethnos also means all genders, all ages, all socioeconomic statuses, all gifts, and all expressions of God. And it's easy to get so focused on the ones that I most naturally value that I have to intentionally remember the way I am the image of God is not the only way to be the image of God. A number of years ago, uh, I love hermeneutics. Uh, it's the interpretation of scripture. It's one of the things in my pot. And how many know you are, you, we all sort of subconsciously believe that the thing that we're passionate about God is the most important thing in the kingdom. Will anybody admit to being a little theological narcissist with me? Okay, just me, okay. And so I was with one of my friends. Uh, she has a doctorate. She certainly values education. And I was waxing eloquent about how important hermeneutics is and how in the nursery we need to start teaching people hermeneutics and to do proper exegesis. I'm waxing eloquent about this. And she looks at me, and I love it because she's so sassy. She said, that's important, JP. But when I was growing up, there were so many times we didn't even have enough food to eat. 
And my mama didn't need hermeneutics, she needed a miracle. She wasn't minimizing my passion for hermeneutics, she was demanding that my stuff stay in its pot. That there were other pots at the table, my pot didn't get to go wild and take over everybody else's stuff. That all had to work together. We all have our favorite stuff. This is why when there is a special season of the infusion of spiritual energy and passion, a season of renewal in the church, we need to be sure that we intentionally direct it toward all ethnos, not just my favorite ethnos. We have to be aware that if we have a bias toward a particular expression of Christianity, it could be the compassion of God, the truth of God, an age, a style, an ethnic perspective, a gender perspective, if we perceive our favorite is actually kind of God's favorite too, we will use God's energy to put miracle grow on our pot and poison in the others. We have lots of different ethnos here today. And we all have gifts to give to each other. The way it works though is everyone gets to bring something and everybody has to lay something down. Everybody grows something in their pot and they get to bring a fruit and they get to prune a branch. You get to do both. We have young emerging Christians with exciting new experiences and perspectives. They bring something valuable to the table, but they don't bring everything to the table. We have older established Christians with wisdom and legacy and they bring something to the table, but they don't bring everything to the table. We have those who have been blessed with a heritage of abundance and stability, middle class and upper class people, and they bring something to the table, not everything. We have those who have historically been marginalized and they bring something to the table, but not everything. The image of God is most accurately reflected in the diverse community of people made in his image. That is the way it works and that's why it matters. It's true of our perspective, it's true of our giftings. We have people who are prophetic and charismatic and teachers and practical hands-on people. We all get to bring something and we all get to lay something down. That's idea number one. Are we doing okay? I promise the second two will be shorter. Unless I change my mind and they're not. I mean, unless the Lord changes his mind. I'm not spiritual enough for that. <laughs> Idea number two, Jesus is building a local and global community comprised of new creation people. Being a new creation person is this, believing and behaving like God has invested all the power it took into creating the original cosmological order into creating his new heaven on earth community known as the church. How many know that if you believe that God has given all of the power, all of the resource, all of the care, all of the attention to building the church that he invested in creating everything we know in the cosmos, that will change your perspective on what God can and cannot do. Let me show you how Matthew teases this out. 
Just like all ethnos in the Great Commission in chapter 28 refers back to Genesis 1 and to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, the command to baptize in Matthew 28 also refers back to Genesis chapter 1 and then to the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. Now, often we think about baptism, and it's not a bad way to think about it. It's just one perspective on it. Often we think about baptism as being a metaphor or a symbol for being cleansed from our sin or maybe for resurrection from our old life. But for Matthew, specifically, the metaphor of baptism goes further back and is even larger and more comprehensive than that. So I want to look at how Matthew gives the account of the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3 and see if we can sort this out. Let's read just verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. This is after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water. Please remember that phrase. The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending. Please remember that phrase like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Please remember that phrase. Now, as I said, for Matthew, baptism is far more than forgiveness. Those three elements, Jesus, the word of God coming up out of the water, the spirit settling over the water on Jesus and the voice from heaven announcing that it is very good. That language is meant to immediately draw the, the reader and the hearer's mind back to the creation of the cosmos. There in Genesis 1, we have the same imagery. We have the Spirit of God hovering over the water. Life emerging from that water and the Father declaring that what emerged from that water was very good. The two accounts mirror each other. There is something important that we can miss, though, as a modern Western reader. Listen to the description of the waters in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit was hovering over the surface. This pre-creation language of a watery darkness is the same language used in almost every ancient creation account that we know of from the ancient world. It describes the world as being this watery abyss where there is no order, there is no structure, there is only chaos and death. We read about it in the ancient Egyptian creation myths where there is a God that emerges from the dark chaos. We read it in a Babylonian where it's described as a watery abyss. And in Genesis 1, all of the ancient world could read that the God, Yahweh, looked over that watery abyss of nothingness and chaos that everyone believed was the pre-creation state of the world. And the Trinitarian action of the Spirit's activity, the Father's heart, and the Word, the Logos of God, bring the creation as we know it into existence. They make the Garden of Eden, they make human life, they make the possibility of joy, of life, of love. All of that becomes possible by the action of the Trinity in that moment. So in the original creation, we have the water. We have the Spirit's movement over the water. We have the emergence of life from the water. And then the action of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit creating something good in that declaration by the Father. For Matthew, Jesus' baptism is nothing short of the emergence of a new creation from the watery chaos. The world, in Matthew's view, has reverted back to its darkness, its lack of order, its chaos, its destructiveness, its lack of shape and beauty. And Jesus descends into that baptismal water, both in baptism and in his incarnation of coming into the world. And he is buried not only in water, but he's buried in dirt. And he emerges out of the water and he emerges out of the ground in resurrection to new creation. 
This baptism is a metaphor telling us a story about how the full power of the original creation is now invested in the new creation. That Jesus will be the beginning of through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So when Jesus is plunged into the water and he's plunged into the ground and he resurrects, it's meant to remind us that the same power that created the billions and billions and billions of light years of cosmos we know about are invested in creating the church. It's a radical idea. It's the idea that he is here to plant Eden 2.0 right in the middle of chaos. A new garden of the spirit something completely other than the world experiences now. So for Matthew, what, what is baptism for us? Baptism for us then becomes a going down into the water, into the chaos. It's an acknowledgement that we have been a part of it, that I have both contributed to the chaos and I have been a victim of the chaos, that I have both inflicted on others and I have been inflicted upon. And when we are raised to life, not only are we forgiven, but we are healed and restored and made new. Everything that the chaos created is undone. We are made fresh. This new creation is a return to what we lost in the garden. How many here long to love and be loved? You long for peace, you long for abundance, you long for meaning, you long for joy. One theologian has noted, and I think this is breathtakingly beautiful, that these longings are not just expressive of what we hope to possess in the future, but they are our body's remembrance and grief for what we have lost when we left the garden that our bodies actually remember what it was like to be born for a life different than we are experiencing right now. And sadness and grief and loneliness and stress and anxiety are our body's response to not living in our native land. Jesus shows up and says the new creation, the new Eden, a re-inhabiting of life as it was meant to be begins right now. And this new creation, it, it changes everything. Are we doing okay? Amen. Doing okay? Are right, you quiet on me? You doing okay? All right. It engages life differently. It lives in a different atmosphere where we are deeply loved. And because we're deeply loved, we create a different atmosphere for those around us. How many know that impacts how you, people are treated? That impacts how bodies are treated, how enemies are treated, how we treat power, how we treat money, how we treat success, and so on. Chuck Wayne, one of the architects of the, the hippie movement, he was introducing Jimi Hendrix at a concert in Maui in 1970. And he described the hippie movement as the greatest dropout since the Christians dropped out of Rome in the first century. And he got it. The Christians just opted out of life outside of Eden. They said, we just don't live there anymore. We, we're done operating out of hurt. We're done operating out of pain. We're done operating out of scarcity. We now live in a new creation where we are fully loved and the spirit makes that real and accessible and possible and it changes everything. Baptism then is an informed bodily commitment to be a part of the on earth as it is in heaven movement. 
It is an external sign of our alignment with the plan and the power for a new creation. Baptism should be a clear, decisive, meaningful, powerful moment where the follower of Jesus says, I see the world for what it is, what it gets you, how broken the whole world is. I see the darkness. And with this act and by his power, I am emerging from it and committing to be a part of the beautiful new thing that God isn't just doing in me, he's doing in us the new community that he is building. My prayer is on that Wednesday, March 15th. I don't know if they'll have the stuff up there for the sign up. You gonna have it? See if it magically appears. It is not magically appearing, but you can go to the website at grfirst forward slash baptism. If you wanna be baptized, my prayer is that those people who are baptized, when they emerge from the water, they won't just say, I'm forgiven. They'll say, this changes everything. At the practical level, we're discussing being a new creation person means that when a new spiritual energy flows into our lives or into the life of the Christian community, it can't be directed into pessimism about people. The new creation is all about bringing those people to life. It can't be directed into villainizing the world. Those are the chaotic waters that the spirit is brooding over to bring life out of chaos. That spiritual energy can't produce cynicism about the future. That new spiritual energy can't sharpen the divide between those who are in and those who are out. In the words of Paul, love, which is the oxygen of the new creation, hopes all things. Love is an optimist. Idea number three. Jesus is building a local and global community of newly postured people. So all ethnos links back to Genesis chapter one and Matthew chapter one, the genealogy. Baptism, which is really just an initiation into this new creation life that God is birthing on the planet, links back to Genesis chapter one and Matthew chapter three, Jesus' baptism. And teaching them to obey links back to Genesis. That is, I'm teaching people to behave like the original creation meant them to be. And it links back to Matthew chapter five through seven, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount. Again, remembering that we're just taking a sort of snapshot of what Matthew is getting at to give ourselves a larger picture of what on earth Jesus is doing. We're gonna focus for a moment just on the function of the Beatitudes. What are the Beatitudes? Here's how I would describe them. They are simply a description of the internal posture of the people who just by being who they are will naturally create Eden. The Beatitudes are a description of the internal posture in life of people who just by being who they are will naturally produce Eden-like community around them. They are people who reproduce the on earth as it is in heaven experience. These internal postures are the process by which we become and are the new creation. So when we commit to doing what on earth Jesus is doing, we don't just commit to an outcome, reaching the globe. We commit to being the kind of people who the natural result of our lives is the kind of community that Jesus wants to build. We don't just commit to a product, we commit to a process. 
to an internal process of becoming. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is impossible to get a new creation outcome without a new creation posture. So let's read that text together. We'll connect the dots and we'll wrap up. So what are the people like who are helping create this new Eden? Starting in verse three of Matthew chapter five. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. The kingdom of heaven, we already mentioned the kingdom of heaven, that's just the new, the new creation. They're the ones who get the new creation. God blesses those who mourn. They're gonna experience God's comfort. God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. Context of Hebrew theology, that's normally caring for the widow and the poor and the oppressed. They will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they'll be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. What's right? The previous stuff we just read. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now understand the second line of each of those statements is really just a variant of a variety of ways of saying, these are the people who will experience and who produce the new creation. This is what those people are like. And the dispositions described in the first line of each of those dispositions are the ones of people who help be a part of the process of creating the world that God intended. So in the text, Jesus says, these are internal processes that will produce, that will lead to our relationships becoming Eden-esque, to beautiful, loving families, to life-giving communities, to new creation. And the activity of my spirit will never be in full operation without them. They are my plan. They are what I am doing. These are the internal dispositions that lead to the kind of kingdom and community Jesus is interested in building. We'll make our three ideas very practical and usable in just a moment. I know we've taken a 30,000 foot view. I know it's probably not one of those messages where like, ah, it's awesome. Hopefully it's helpful and useful. Yes. Let's look at our objectives. Hopefully maybe we've seen a little bit something about what Matthew is up to in his gospel that maybe will help us the next time we read, we read. Hopefully at some point today, the spirit of God gave us a little ache for the beauty of the world that we lost and the beauty of the world that is to come. But very practically, I hope that we have a handy little yes rubric to use to evaluate what we are adding energy toward so that we can ensure we're doing what on earth Jesus is doing. That we don't take the energy, the new work of the spirit that God is doing in our life and latch it onto something that he's not interested in, but that we steward it well. 
whatever we feel called to, whatever spiritual energy is generated in this season, whether it's through something of a revival or a renewal, whether it's a conference or a book we read or a sermon we heard, whatever it is, it has to be directed toward what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is reaching and honoring his image in all ethnos. That I know he's doing. So the question we can ask is, am I using this energy to honor the unique image and expression of God in all of his people? Or, or is the energy that is inside of me from God being used to pit one ethnos against another, one age against another, one gender against another, one gifting against another, one experience against another? Because if that's the case, God's spirit will be withdrawn. He doesn't give his resource to build the things that he's not interested in. I know he's interested in all ethnos. I know Jesus is actively engaged in building new creation people. So the question we can ask is, am I using this spiritual energy to produce an optimistic new creation perspective in myself and others that believes in the power of the spirit who broods over the face of the chaos and brings life from death? Or am I using that spiritual energy to heighten my pessimism about the way the world is, my pessimism about a particular group of people, my pessimism about the state of things in the world? Am I actually latching God's energy into me being a part of being destructive and not resurrectional about the world that I live in? And I know Jesus is creating an internal posture in his people that will lead to communities that look like Eden. So the question I can ask is, am I using this new spiritual energy, this new spiritual passion, to producing the internal dispositions that will lead to an Eden-esque experience for people around me? Is the spirit working in me leading to humility, to mercy, to quick forgiveness, to optimism, to belief that the best is right around the corner for even my enemies? All people, optimistic people, and properly postured people. That's what on earth Jesus is doing. That's the community as Jesus is building.